Welcome to another week of Necronominom with Jenna and Matt. This week, we're going to discuss the film Sinister, which is a 2012 horror film directed by Scott Derrickson. Uh, it tells the story of true crime writer Ellison Oswalt, who moves his family into a murder house to write his next novel. When he finds a box of Super 8 snuff films in the attic, he becomes obsessed with solving the mystery and regaining his notoriety. Uh, this is a really good film, in my opinion. Yeah, I think um, we spoke about this last week, that it is one of my favorites. It's one of the only ones, I think, that can actually scare me. Yeah, in recent memory, uh, this is possibly, I don't know, it might be the best one I've seen since the earlier 2000s. I agree with that. It's actually possibly one of my favorite horror films of all time. It mm. feels, I don't like saying that because it is only four years old. <laughs> yeah, I know. it is so good. Obviously, that's not everybody's opinion because it doesn't have the best rating on Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb. So, other people didn't like it as much as we did. But Yeah, that's right. It only got in the 60% on both. Mm. I don't think that's good enough. I, I think it was a great film. Yeah, I think it's perfectly targeted at us because we love the scary bits and we love the, the mystery bits. It's got- Right. It's like a detective story or he's not a detective. He's a, he's a writer. And he's, he's a true crime writer, but he, yeah. as he figures out parts of, of the murder, you figure them out. Right. And it, it's great because as it begins, he's investigating a murder and you think he's finding clues, but what he, he's actually kind of falling into this supernatural situation. And that, as that becomes more apparent, it gets creepier and creepier. And um, I don't know. I just, I feel like the atmosphere and the, the, blend of horror and mystery it was just was spot on for me yeah a lot of people's problem with this seems to be that it was kind of stop start because you would get some information some stuff would happen and then you would get more information but that's what i liked about it because yeah. it kind of kept you pulled in yeah i agree so i would like to see more films like this uh, it upsets me a little bit that people didn't like it as much this because- is now the bar <laughs> that i i judge every new film by <laughs> yeah Every time I look for one, I'm like, I need something, like, sinister. <laughs> yeah, because I watched this, I don't know, maybe 2012, 2013 when it came out. And I, I said, you should watch this movie. Yeah, I watched it alone. You were already in bed. <laughs> and I, man, I was like, oh, that was really good. And then as soon as I, like, it's kind of one of those ones that stays with you. Because mm. it's fine. It's not really scary. Well, to me, um, we've watched it with other people who were scared at the time of watching it but yeah. to me it's not really scary when you watch it. it it's one that later on like the images in it stick with you and that's what i found like i watched it at midnight or something and got up to go to the bathroom and i'm like oh god oh god i'm seeing that face everywhere <laughs> the film stars ethan hawk as ellison oswald i think he's great yeah he's a good actor i i miss him he he used to be in a lot of stuff back in the 90s and early 2000s mm-hmm. and it's great to see him Playing adult now. <laughs> in this, he reminds me of um, Johnny Depp in The Ninth Gate a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Similar kind of character. And I guess that's also, <laughs> we like that film a lot as well. So, maybe mm. that's what it is. It's that kind of character. Uh, the other actors, I don't think are very big actors. Um, James Ransom plays the deputy who mm-hmm. actually goes unnamed. The most thing <laughs> they give him is deputy so-and-so. Yeah. He's kind of the comedic relief. Mm-hmm. And his lines are terrific. Every time he's on screen, he's hilarious. Yeah, he was good in this. He uh, he went on to be the star of the sequel, which was shit. Ooh, the sequel was terrible. 
Um, so, yeah, avoid the sequel, um, which is a shame because I thought he was really good in this. Yeah, and it's the same writer and director. Yeah, weird. I don't know what happened there. Mm. Juliet Rylance as Tracy Oswalt. And I've seen her in some stuff, maybe some Australian stuff. Um, she looks familiar to me, but I'm not quite sure what I've seen her in. Right. There's actually not that many people in this film, to be honest. No, no. They're the two kids. Mm-hmm. The guy who plays Bagul, or the boogeyman, who is the main antagonist, or like he's the demon, um, is played by Nicholas King. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've seen him in anything else before. And actually, you don't even see him in this. He's I wouldn't recognize him. He's full makeup the whole time. Mm. Yep. Fred Dalton Thompson as the sheriff. Uh, I've definitely seen him in some other stuff. I'm not quite sure what, though. Mm. Um, and Vincent D'Onofrio shows up in this uncredited- An unrecognizable. <laughs> no, I recognized him. <laughs> ah, he's got a full beard and hair. Yeah. Not like I've ever seen him before. <laughs> it doesn't look like Kingpin. Um, yeah, he's, he plays Professor Jonas. Uh, and yeah, he's not credited at all. Um, and apparently he's just really good friends with Ethan Hawke. And they often find roles for each other in, in their films. Yeah, that's weird because I can't think of a single other film that either of them have that- the other one's in. Yeah, I had no idea they're even fr- I mean, not, why would I know that they were friends? But mm. but I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and apparently his whole, his all of his stuff was just, it took half a day to shoot and they literally just used a laptop to film him, which makes <laughs> right. sense because that's, that's, he just appears over Skype in the film. Yeah. But yeah, he's, uh, he's great in everything. He's a really good actor. So he's a, he's an academic character in this. Well, he's kind of the exposition man. Yeah. He, I think he does a good job of it. Hmm. Yeah, he knows all of the symbols. Um, I mean, it's a little convenient, but that's, I mean, that's this kind of, that's what this film is. Ah, that's fine. I mean, that's how the story progresses, so. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I like about this the most, I think, like I said, it's something that stays with you. Um, and it doesn't really rely too much on jump scares. Mm-hmm. Like when we watched The Conjuring, just the last episode, we talked about how we weren't a huge fan of that. I think they're okay if they're used infrequently and correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this one has a couple of them, but it doesn't really rely on them. Mm-hmm. One of the writers actually said, for me, the slower burn is a deeper and more effective scare. I like a good jump scare, and there are a few in the movie, but I only like those kinds of scares when they're really earned. I don't like false scares. I think the experience of getting an audience a little bit tense and shocking them with a jump scare and then moving on, it can be cheap and easy. The harder thing is to get them unnerved and disturbed in a growing way. That starts off easy and increases all the way through the picture. That was the idea with the bagul in this movie. See, I feel like that really worked with me because at the beginning, I genuinely thought maybe there was some kind of serial murderer, like a, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a normal bog standard serial murderer getting around. And then it's only as you go on, things get stranger and stranger. And then eventually you kind of go, well, that's not normal. But, but it t- took a little while to build up to that. Yeah. I, f- I felt like that was pretty effective. And then, uh, like, even the first time you see Bagul, you don't know what it is. And it, I mean, it could be a person. It could be anything. Like, it's just, I don't know. I thought it was done really well. Yeah. And it's one of those things, usually, the less you see something, the scarier it is. Yeah. This one, every time he was on screen, he was terrifying. Yeah. It's a really good design, I think, because he's, he's human looking, but he's wrong. He looks wrong. They actually found it, um, the writer-director, uh, Derrickson, typed horror into Google <laughs> and found his favorite image, which was just credited as a ghoul named Natalie. <laughs> um, he found the artist, 
and bought it for $500 in screen credit, which I think is pretty awesome because most of the time, you know, they can just get away with using it. They just buy it and then you never hear who it was. Exactly. It did it, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a good design. It reminds me of, um, uh, I don't know if you've played the Elder Scrolls games. He looks a little bit like the Dark Elves in that. Okay. Um, but if creepier, if, <laughs> if that's possible. Right. He said he was going for a messed up Willy Wonka. <laughs> okay, yeah. Doesn't look like Johnny Depp. Nobody, I mean, Ethan Hawke kind of reminds us of him, so. There you go. It's the circle of life. In the film, Ellison. Played by Hawke. Is a true crime writer uh, who had a lot of success with a, a book called Kentucky Blood that he wrote, which he basically helped solve the murder of a, of a child, I believe. Yeah. And he's been kind of resting on that for the past 10 years without being able to write anything good since then. He's been doing talk shows and trying to one up himself, I think, for- for quite some time, unsuccessfully. So, apparently, he's written a few other books that were not, not as good. And so, at the beginning of the film, he's moved his family into a house where a murder took place. A uh, family was murdered. Uh, and one of the children is missing still. Mm -hmm. But, he, I mean, his wife and the kids don't know that that's where they're living. That's right. But he's moved them in there and he's going to investigate. And then the sheriff and everybody, they know who he is and they're unhappy with him being there. But there's not much they can do about it and that kind of thing. And so- he begins his investigation, and one of the first things he discovers is in the attic of the house, there is a box of reel-to-reel uh, -reel film tapes, mm -hmm. canisters, uh, all labeled with uh, things like um, pool party or- Backyard barbecue. Backyard barbecue. Yeah, like weird, fairly innocuous looking things. Kind of things. family video style things. Right. And in the box with them is a, is a projector. Mm -hmm. So- he takes it all down to his office, pops the tapes on, and they appear to be- This is what I like about it, actually, because he doesn't watch them all at once, and it takes no. place over a week or a couple of weeks or something, and he only watches one per night, which kind of makes sense because they're pretty heavy material-wise. So, yeah, I mean, you couldn't just sit through eight of them, right? Yeah, I wouldn't be able to power through them. <laughs> no. So, they seem to be recordings of murders. Mm -hmm. So, I want to get into this a little bit, into the mythology of snuff films. Mm -hmm. I did some research on this. <laughs> and actually, a thing about this film in particular is sinister. Um, this was Ethan Hawke's genuine reaction to these films. They didn't show him any of them before they filmed. Yeah, right. Just horrified in real time. Yeah. So, I mean, I assume he knew they were all going to be snuff films, but he didn't know sure. the content until he actually sat down and watched them during filming. Yeah, right. A snuff film, by definition is a genre of movies in which an actor is actually murdered on screen mm. um, for financial gain or entertainment. Right. Okay. So technically, would filming a murder be classified as that normally? See, I, I guess there's kind of a gray area, right? Like, because mm. there are some beheadings and things like that. Those do not count, like, according to the FBI, and they, they do not count as snuff films because it's more for an ideology or something like that. Like, it's, it's not for the purpose of financial gain or entertainment. Right, like religious propaganda or something. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And I think to count as a snuff film, the victim actually has to die on camera. Sure, okay. So filming mutilations and things like that don't count either. Makes, um, makes sense. So there are some myths of like this kind of secret society, this group of depraved individuals who share these films within the group. 
Right. But th- there's no record of any actually existing. Right. None at all. Well. Well, there's several cases where people have had to prove that things weren't snuff films. Yeah, and- exactly. So I have a bit of a timeline. Yeah, um, cool. The first mention of the term snuff film mm-hmm. was coined in a 1971 book written by Ed Sanders about the Charlie Manson murders. Right. He claims that there were some films like that that the family had in possession, but none were ever found. Right. There was a movie also around that time called Peep Show, which doesn't really, it doesn't mention the term. I think it was about the same time, but it's one of the earliest examples of that in film. Right. Where a man is watching women through holes in his apartment or something like that. I've never seen it. Yeah, right. And I guess he kills them on on camera. Right. The 1976 film called Snuff depicts a murder cult kind of Manson-esque. And it was marketed as an actual snuff film. Right. So it was actually filmed a few years prior and Mm -hmm. tested terribly. And they just kind of shelved it (laughs) for a while. (laughs) Right. People didn't like it. I wonder why. Well, no, no, no. This is before it was a snuff film. So it was just a terrible horror movie. Oh, okay. Um, Somebody else bought it and then spliced in some footage of an actress being disemboweled onto the end. Right. And put out a fake report that it was a snuff film, hired actors to protest it, (laughs) and put the tagline, the film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. (laughs) Far out. And yeah, so they had to investigate that and found that it it wasn't real. Right. The first Faces of Death came out in 1978. Remember those from when I was in high school? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well... I assume as a kid, you heard that they were all real. Absolutely. Because I did. Yeah, and I yeah. always thought they were up until I researched it now. About 40% of them were deemed to be fake. Right. 40% of the videos within them. And the other videos were just incidental deaths. Right. Which don't count. Yeah. Okay. Not. not. Or executions. Yeah. I see. Oh, okay. So none of that actually counts. Well, I mean, it's still... <laughs> Still as advertised, I suppose, but not a snuff film. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. In 1980, Cannibal Holocaust came out. Yes. You've seen this, haven't you? I have, yes. I have too. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> it's awful. And uh, a lot of animals and humans get killed in it. And Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's about a documentary film that goes to the Amazon to film cannibalistic tribes. Yeah. They premiered it. And the film was immediately seized and the director was arrested on obscenity charges. <laughs> yep. And then he was held on murder, like on charges of murder, when evidence came out that it was potentially a snuff film and that the actors were actually killed on camera. Yeah. What made matters worse for him was that the deceased actors had signed contracts that they would not be seen in any type of media for one year following the release. <laughs> Right. So, so everyone thought they were dead. They had to track them. Yeah. So everyone thought they were dead. So they had to track them down and do an interview with them to explain how all of the effects were achieved. Mm, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was fine. Nobody was killed for that movie except for quite a lot of animals. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's the, the actual dark side of that film, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty bad, too. Oh. I, don't, I don't really actually want to watch it again because uh, I know now. I mean, yeah, fine. The people aren't being killed, but that's, that's, they're genuinely, like, messing mm-hmm. up those animals. So, 
quite a lot of them. Yep. Yep. I guess if we ever do watch that, we can talk about that more in depth, but mm. it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, not nice. And the movie itself is not very good. So <laughs> no, that's right. Hopefully we won't do that one. From 1980 till 1990, there were seven films, uh, Japanese films, called Guinea Pig. Right. Uh, in 1991, somebody gave a copy to Charlie Sheen, <laughs> who watched it. Right. And thought that the woman in it was actually being murdered. Right. Um, brought it to the attention of the FBI, mm-hmm. who had already launched an investigation into it, and teamed up with the Japanese authorities and found the actress alive. Wow. Yeah, I know. Charlie Sheen, what the hell? Yep. <laughs> now, this is my favorite story. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe that neither of us have ever heard this before. I know, unbelievable. In 1989, a camera was discovered on a farmer's Michigan property. And he watched the film that was on this camera, which depicted a man's body lying in blood on the street. So he... he called the FBI, they launched an investigation into this, they identified by the lights of a train that it had been filmed in Chicago. That's amazing. I know, I know, because it's dark too. <laughs> yeah. So all that was seen on the film was this man lying in the street in a puddle of blood, mm-hmm. and two men in strange uniforms come over him, mm-hmm. and then the camera like tilts, and you see the train and some lights, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it floated away on weather balloons. Yep. So it turns out, after a year-long search, (laughs) that Nine Inch Nails, a new band at the time, was filming a video for the song Down In It. Great song. By attaching Super 8 cameras to weather balloons (laughs) and filming, you know, downward shots. Yeah, they were trying to do a crane shot on a low budget. Right. The body in the street is Trent Reznor, covered in cornstarch. (laughs) <laughs> which the mortician thought was signs of body decomposition. <laughs> That's great. I know. <laughs> they found who it was when an art student was watching TV, saw the video for Down In It, recognized <laughs> it as something that was, you know, always on TV as like the FBI most wanted thing. Yeah, what the watch list. Yeah. And called up and, and said, I just saw the video. It's this band. They contacted Reznor's manager, told him, and he had to like produce Reznor and show that he was still alive. <laughs> yep. Amazing. If you can watch the video, the news video on this. Yeah, we'll link to it. It's, it's great. one of my favorite things now. Check the show notes at necronomenom.com and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth watching. It's really funny, especially just to see what Trent Reznor looked like back then. I know. And also just bear in mind, this guy's an Academy Award winning film composer now and, uh, and just have a look at, have a look at him back then. It's a, pretty funny. <laughs> But yeah, it's a great story. I can't believe I didn't yeah. know that. I know, I know. Because I know so many stories about Nine Inch Nails and all the weird stuff they used to get up to. And I just didn't know that one. And that one's it's such an interesting one. It is. I know. Yeah. I can't believe it's not more widely known. Yeah. Back to the snuff films. Yeah. The publisher of the pornographic Screw magazine, Al Goldstein, offered $1 million to anyone who could produce an actual snuff film. And it is yet to be claimed. That's interesting. It's interesting, but then... I mean, would you go and say, oh, yeah, I made one? (laughs) Money, please. Good point. Good point. See, I just assume these things exist because I've seen so many movies about them. Yeah, exactly. uh, I I always assumed that there were just hundreds of them, but hmm. none of them have actually been proven to be real. Okay. I did find two 
that come close enough. Right. Um, they have a, a bit of a theme in their titles. One is called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. All right. And the other is called Three Men, One Hammer. Right. I think I've um, seen some other videos that follow a similar naming scheme. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what they were both based on. <laughs> what the name was based on anyway. Yeah, right. The videos themselves are not pleasant to watch, so I do not recommend that you do that. We will not link um, to them in the show notes. You can probably figure out what they're about. Yeah. But, well, the first one uh, is post-mortem. Mm-hmm. The second one is not. But I think the way that it does not fit into the category of a snuff film is that they did not intend it for the reasons I mentioned before, financial gain or, or entertainment. Right. It was just these kids in Russia that killed over like a week or something, killed about 21 people with a hammer. Bloody hell. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a nice video to watch. Right. Well, don't look those up, listeners. Mm-hmm. Just take our word for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did the work, so you don't have to. <laughs> That's what we do. So his reaction when he saw the snuff films in, in the movie, and I got to say they're, they're well done in this. They're in really well done. I, I really feel like without them, the movie would not have been as good. Because they're-, they're They kind of steal the movie. They're creepy and disturbing, but they're not gory and they're not gross or over the top. They're just disturbing. They kind of allude to something. They're so simple and like not gory that they're more disturbing because Mm -hmm. I guess it it seems more realistic. Like you never see anything much in them. That's right. Like as in gore or or anything like that. They're just very Mm -hmm. disturbing. And the the soundtrack is is incredibly Oh, the soundtrack is great. A lot of the songs were actually purchased from, you know, people's SoundClouds and and that things they scoured the internet for songs that would fit. Well, they they scoured well. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of my favorites is it's used sometime in the middle of the film, but it's it's the end credits mm-hmm. as well. I know the one you mean. Yeah, and it it sounds like like the flapping of an old film reel. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like a drum beat, but it's not a drum. It's like a it's like a very um, intense rhythm, sort mm. of. Yeah, yeah, it's very effective. All right, so we're going to get into uh, some deeper spoilers here. So if you haven't seen the film, now is definitely a good time to stop and go and watch it because we're going to ruin it for you. Um, Look, I don't think these are, are terrible spoilers. We're not going to come out and give you the ending. No, but we're going to reveal some, something about it, which I think yeah. part of discovering this stuff is for me- It's part, part of the of fun the, of the movie. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, see yourselves, keep listening if you want, but I do recommend you watch the movie. So, it's very good. So, we're going to talk now about Bagul. As Ellison's watching these snuff films, he begins to notice that there is uh, another character who pops up in the background a lot, uh, who's this creepy figure that we've already mentioned. Uh, and the first time he shows up is, is really creepy because he's in, he's in a pool. And uh, I think every time he shows up is creepy. There's one part in particular. I won't give it away. It's like I wait for it every time. <laughs> I, you'll know what it is when you see it. Just the first time I watched this, right, because I didn't know, I didn't even realize there was anything supernatural about it. And that's that bit where he's in the water and he, he turns very slowly to the camera mm-hmm. and my, my skin just crawled because I was like, what is that? Yeah. Like, yeah, because it's not great. clear. You, it's the rippling of the water over his face. Yeah. You just cannot make out what it is, but it just looks creepy as hell. And oh, man. I, it's so effective, like, as far as I'm concerned. 
totally. That's that's what I mean. Like that's the image that sticks with me. That yeah. I'm like, oh, that's really cool, and like that's creepy. But then later on, I'm like, oh god, the lights are flickering. I'm like, oh, I see <laughs> okay. it everywhere. He's gonna be behind me. Yeah. So this guy, uh, or whatever guy, uh, starts showing up. He finds him in the other films, even the ones he's already watched. He goes back and watches them again and spots him in the background, as long mm-hmm. along with some symbols that he spots that are mm-hmm. present in all of the films. And so, uh, as it goes on, he contacts his yes. friend. Enter Vincent D'Onofrio. Professor Jonas, who explains to him that the symbol represents a character known as Bagul, who is an ancient Babylonian demon, the eater of children. And uh, he takes children to his, I guess, nether realm and feeds off their souls. I believe they made up that symbol as well. They did a lot of research into black metal bands. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think it's awesome. Like they did a lot of work on this. Yeah, right. Drawing from all these different sources, and yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So he's a he's a child stealing demon, and yeah, he's in in every murder. It turns out one of the children went missing, and mm-hmm. uh, so we can assume they're with him now. Yeah, that's right. So he is based on the boogeyman, mm-hmm. and I think that's another thing about this movie that's scary, right? Because the boogeyman is kind of a tool that parents use to kids. Yeah. Like, eat your dinner or the boogeyman's going to get you, go to bed or- I would never tell my kids that, but I know what you mean. Oh, but I mean, I was told that. Yeah, of course. I'm sure lots of kids were. Like, all over the world kids are. Yeah, I know. It seems like a terrible thing to do. I know, I know. (laughs) Like, to scare them into into compliance. Mm. I suppose that's that's religion, I suppose. I was just going to say, that's what religion (laughs) is, so- (laughs) Do what you're told or big scary guy's going to smite you. Yeah. So it's used for kids, but as an adult, you kind of grow out of that. Sure. Like, you know, the boogeyman isn't real. He's like, not? It was, just, it was just a thing. Like, like kids, cover your ears. Like Santa. <laughs> yeah, right. That your parents told you about so you, wouldn't, so you wouldn't be a little shit of a kid. Yeah. A bit more terrifying than Santa, but yes. Yeah. Same, same, same theory. So <laughs> what's scary about this is that it is real. <laughs> right. Like... Like, it's this, it's this thing you've had in your mind since you were a kid that really all you had was the name. Like, mm-hmm. the boogeyman is going to get you. But you come up with what he looks like. Yeah, right. And now, as an adult, turns out he's real. <laughs> yep. At first, it's possible that this is just someone worshipping this weird deity. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because Professor Jonas mentions that you know, there are cults associated with it. And- yeah, and like murdering and perhaps eating children would be part of a ritual to worship this guy. Right. And, and so you still, at, the, at first, it's like, oh, maybe it's just some psychopath, you know? Hmm. But, you know, <laughs> things, things go downhill from there. <laughs> You've identified some, uh, some potential sources of inspiration for this demon. Yeah, so in other mythology all over the world, there are not only demons who eat children, but there are gods mm-hmm. and other mythical creatures. Why are we going to have so many, so many gods and, and creatures that eat children? Well, I guess for each culture, each religion draws on another culture's religion. Sure. So things like, like some of the gods, right? There was the Canaanite god of Moloch. Uh-huh. Um, and then Saturn in the Roman mm-hmm. um, and Kronos, the Greek. 
Yes. Now, Greek and Roman are very, very similar to each other. Some of the stories of what the gods got up to are exactly the same. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that, that each culture had its own. Yeah, they probably evolved from a, a prior culture that had the same stories. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were some demons um, who also ate children. Uh, Lamia is a Greek demon who was one of Zeus's mistresses. And Hera found out, Zeus's wife, mm-hmm. and forced Lamia to eat all of her children. Right. Now she is a monster that hunts and devours the children of others. There is a Middle Eastern demon called Abizu, hmm. who is blamed for all the miscarriages and infant mortality. And it was said that she was motivated by envy because she herself was infertile. What a dick. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I think that's pretty interesting that it's not just demons. There are sure. some gods as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's more, uh, more I guess, um, Greek mythology style to blame the gods for everything. That's right. Yeah, they were not infallible. Nope. No, definitely not. <laughs> Greek mythology is awesome. They get up to some cool shit. <laughs> cool and creepy. <laughs> A lot of different cultures have creatures, mythical creatures, that also resemble the boogeyman. Yeah, right. So I guess every culture has its own way of making kids, you know, do what they need to do, do their chores or behave. In medieval England, there was a bugbear, not to be confused with the D&D bugbear. <laughs> um, it was just a creepy bear that lurked in the woods. So, you know, kids, stay on the path. It's pedo bear. Don't run into the woods. <laughs> Yeah. In Latin America Uh and in Spain, there was El Coco, (laughs) who would immediately devour the child, leaving no trace. Or it would spirit the child away to a place of no return. But it only does this to disobedient children. He has such an adorable name. El Coco. El Coco. I know, it's adorable. (laughs) I'm going to kill your children. I'm El Coco. So he would sit on top of the roof and he could take the shape of any dark shadow and he would always be watching to see if you misbehave. Well, that's just creepy. I mean, it's kind of the same as Santa. (laughs) Sure, except Santa doesn't eat you. No, sorry, Santa doesn't eat you, but like, it's, the the tool is the same as Santa. Absolutely, yeah. Like, be good all year or you will be getting coal. Yeah, yeah. Or Krampus will take you away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Krampus is actually probably a really good example too. Mm. And also, um, uh, Baba Yaga. Yeah. The, uh, with the house on chicken legs. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. It's all stuff. I think Baba Yaga was also good though. Uh, I think, wait, if you answer her riddle, right? She'll grant you wishes or something. Something like that. Yeah. But she wasn't always evil. Yeah, I think it depends. But yeah, you're right. It's like a way of controlling kids without, uh, discipline, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) without smacking them or whatever. This one is my favorite just because of what he's called. Um, in Italy, the, uh, El Duomo Nero. If children didn't go to sleep or got out of bed at night, Luomo Nero would come and take them away for an entire year. And there's actually a rhyme about it. Right. But Luomo Nero just translates to the black man. <laughs> Jesus. So it's kind of just telling the kids, go to bed or the black man will come and take you away. That's the same backstory that Zwart Pete had originally. Now, oh, really? listeners will know, or listeners of our other podcast, Multiple Nerdgasm, will know that Zwart Pete is a Dutch tradition uh, at Christmas time where Santa's um, helper, who is black, uh, now helps him hand out presents and stuff like that. But yeah, no, originally he used to come and take the children away and he represented 
um, Spaniards, I believe. Uh, they used to, <laughs> like, I think that's where it came from. They used to tell the kids back before that, if you don't do your chores, the Spanish will come and take you. <laughs> but it literally translates to the black man. So I thought that was funny. Yeah. I think if it is racist, it's like, it's incidentally racist. Like exactly. they don't, they're not doing it to be jerks. Right. They're just scared of things that are different. I have a personal anecdote. When my cousins were little, my uncle used to tell them that the FBI would come and get them. Um, and he had a friend once come and knock at the door in his police uniform and say, the FBI is here to come to get the kids. And these kids, like, you just had to mention the FBI and they were like on their best behavior. The boogeyman is a... Yeah, I like that they the call world. him... They refer to him as the boogeyman uh, as well as Bagul because it kind of grounds him as well because Bagul means nothing. Right. Um, they actually call him Mr. Boogie. Yeah. The kids call him Mr. Boogie, which is <laughs> even creepier. Like he never calls him that. The kids just call him that. The, so, the name Bagul actually, they made up for the film. I think it was a combination of the bugbear and a ghoul. Ah. <laughs> I like, I, I, you did the same thing as I did, but I found this out when I searched like, is Bagul real? Not meaning, like, is this a real thing? Like, <laughs> yeah, is there but... actually a Bagul that will come yeah. and get me? But was that an actual belief at yes. some point? And there were some terrific Yahoo answers about it. Yeah. Spoilers, he's not real. He's not real. <laughs> As in, he was never a deity. Yeah, he's not real in either sense of the, of the, <laughs> exactly. of the question. But, but somebody somebody answered something along the lines of, I don't know, I don't want to check for fear that I could awaken something through the internet. I know, people are great. <laughs> I don't know, and I don't want to know. <laughs> Ethan Hawke actually said in an interview that he had never wanted to do a horror movie because he was afraid that he, like, being on set would kind of awaken demons in his own mind. Oh, I guess that's our, uh, that's our sinister discussion. Yeah, I really love this movie. Yeah, me too. It's great. This was, I, I, this was my third viewing. I still love it. I still get anxious watching it. Yeah. I know. It weirds me out when, it, when people don't like it because I'm like, huh. I know. I can't believe the reviews just aren't great. Yeah. I, know, I thought it was really great. And again, don't watch the sequel. It's really bad. Yeah, it's like, really it's bad. It's unbelievably bad considering how great I thought this one was. I've even read reviews that said that this was not a good movie, but it was a scary movie. Right. Okay. See, as we as we talk about these movies, even the ones that I love, obviously we do come across things that are convenient, like Vincent D'Onofrio giving the exposition and and things like the way that everything's staggered in the way that you find things out in the film, and you know, like. But I feel like the yeah, atmosphere but that creates suspense. That's yeah, and the atmosphere and everything in this like hid that from me in a way, you know, like. Mm -hmm. Whereas I guess some people. Yeah, just if it didn't didn't work, then they just spot all the holes immediately. Right. And a lot of people have problems with the fact that, like, he always watches these in the middle of the night with all the lights off. Uh, yeah. He doesn't turn any of the lights on in the house. Anytime he hears a noise, he leaves the doors open, like the outside doors open in a murder house. But <laughs> I think because you go kind of deeper, deeper into his obsession with mm. finding out the truth that he is just like on a one track mind. And he's also drinking a lot because of. All yeah. the things he's seen in the in the um, snuff films. So that got addressed like, quite well, though, when the deputy asks him, says, or he says to him, "I've noticed every time I've come round, yeah. you, you've got a, a bottle in your hand." Yeah. Um, one thing that I I will say, the the subplot of his son with the night terrors didn't really go anywhere. 
No, I think it was just used like to create suspense. So things happen during the night and Yeah, there's a creepy scene or two creepy scenes involving that. But they yeah, they don't really go anywhere. No. So But the daughter I think is developed quite well um because at the beginning she you find out she draws on her like she's, uh she's an artist. She draws on her walls. They let her draw on the walls just of her bedroom. Mm. And the things she starts drawing are kind of mirroring what he is seeing in the film, in the yeah. snuff films. Yeah, she draws things that she shouldn't know about and stuff mm. like that. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's the, 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 the sun plot, which was interesting, didn't really go anywhere. It kind of, I actually kind of forgot about it by the end of the film. I think it was just used as a couple of jump scares. Yeah. Which, as I said, aren't, are not frequent in this film, so I can no. excuse that. No, it's a way to get uh, him outside the house at night a couple yeah. of times. <laughs> yeah. Just some character development, I guess. Well, anyway, this, this gets a big thumbs up from me. I recommend yeah. you check it out. If you like horror movies, I think it's, I think it's good. Uh, let us know what you think. Necronomenom at multiplenergasm.com. And you should go and listen to the Multiple Nerdgasm podcast as well. It's um, Matt along with Dan and Luke who talk about some nerdy news. Video games, movies, books, you know. I'm biased, but I think it's pretty good. Yeah. And uh, if, you, if you like what you hear, you can head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash multiplenergasm. And support us on a financial level, or even if you just want to head over to iTunes and give this podcast or any any of our podcasts that you enjoy, um, give us a positive rating. That's really really helpful. We yeah, really it's appreciate. Super it. helpful. It's one of the one of the most helpful things you can do. We also put out some pretty cool T-shirts. Oh yeah, we did. Um, we-, we got some in just to uh, quality control, and they are very good. Yeah, the quality of the shirts is great. They're American Apparel. They're comfy. We're happy mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, totally. Yep. So head over to uh, multiplenergasm.com to the merch area and you can check those out. We've got Necronomenon ones and we've also got uh, Multiple Nergasm podcast ones. This episode was brought to you by Fiverr. Head to multiplenergasm.com slash Fiverr with two R's and you can get a whole bunch of stuff done for just $5. You can get some voiceovers like we have done in the past. Mm -hmm. You can get a ukulele song written with your lyrics you could probably get somebody to write a song for you, like write lyrics. Yeah, almost certainly. Have them write a love poem. You get someone to write some lyrics for you, then you get someone to write the tune, then you get someone to perform it, and then you get someone to mix and master it for you. And it costs could- about 20 bucks. Yeah, and then there you go. You got your, your first single. <laughs> MultipleNerdgasm.com slash Fiverr. <laughs>